Well, hey, Keystone. Thanks for welcoming us into your home. Even though we've been doing this for uh, a handful of weeks, it still feels strange for me to be speaking uh, to you through a camera. Um, I imagine it feels strange for you to be uh, watching us uh, from your living room or on a computer. I just want to say that our desire is to get back together with you and are looking forward to being able to see you again. Our elders are prayerfully considering how and when will be the best way for us to reopen, which um, looks like it may be uh, uh, unpacking small groups uh, before inviting everyone back in for large group worship sessions. But I'd invite you uh, to be praying with us and for us during this time uh, that God would help us to be able to move in wisdom, to know how to honor him um, and how to love our neighbors well during this time. And I want to also speak to the kids who are in the room with you. And, and kids, I love that you're watching this with your parents. In a little bit, we're going to sing some songs. And I don't know if you've been singing along with us uh, over the past few weeks, but I'd encourage you to join us in singing. And then Pastor Keith, he's going to teach us what the Bible has to say. And so he's going to be in a couple of different verses this morning. He's going to be in Luke chapter 22. Uh, he'll mention John 8 or Daniel 7 or Mark 2. And I'd encourage you to be listening along with Pastor Keith. Uh, and if you want to, I would love to see what a drawing might look like of one of the passages that Pastor Keith talks about. Um, I'm going to pray for us and then uh, invite everyone to, uh, to join us in worshiping. So would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, let your name be holy this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes to be able to see you as you reveal yourself in your word, as holy and gracious, as merciful and compassionate, as powerful and loving. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, allow us to see and savor the good news of Jesus Christ, that we might understand how the good news that he is Lord of all, King of kings, might transform the way that we both read the scriptures and look and interact with everything in the world that we see. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guide us to worship you this morning with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. In Jesus' name. Well, good morning, and to all of you who are mothers, a special uh, welcome to you and uh, wishing you a great Mother's Day. I'm sure that, uh, sure that your husbands and your children are going to make sure that they get takeout today for you uh, so that you don't have to cook, and guys and kids, if you forgot, word to the wise. And I'd like to pray for you moms. Uh, I, I know this season where your kids are home from school has been extra uh, challenging. You have duties that you wouldn't have thought of before. And uh, I know that sometimes, uh, especially if you're stretched between school-age children and younger, that uh, it's really demanding. And uh, just want to give thanks to the Lord for your faithfulness. And uh, I'd like to pray for you before we dive into our message this morning. Father, thank you for the gift of motherhood. And, and I know uh, mothers feel at times, and I could say, 
maybe not so much a gift. And yet I pray that the day will come when they look back on the further labors and give you thanks for the privilege of having been so close to the action and seeing these children grow up and uh, become uh, young men and women. And I pray that they'd see their job not simply as you know, teaching them to put their toys away or teaching them to spell or do math, but see their job as especially to point them, these young hearts and minds, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope that he offers them. Uh, for all the other things in life that have significance and meaning, uh, nothing eclipses Lord Jesus and what he offers uh, all of us. And so may your blessing rest on these mothers. May you give them encouragement and strength uh, to face each new day. And uh, may they revel in and treasure this gift that you've given them. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, just want you to imagine that uh, the restrictions are lifted and I'm sitting in a restaurant somewhere with someone I just met. And as we're having conversation about and learning to know each other, um, uh, I tell him that I'm married. And uh, just kind of walk with me here. This is gonna seem a little strange, but he, let's say he says, well, I don't believe you're married. How can you prove it? And I might say, well, look at this ring on my finger. I have a wedding ring. And he might say, well, that doesn't really tell me anything. You could have bought that at a pawn shop. Or you could have bought a jewelry store, but it really doesn't mean that you're married. You might say, well, what about if I showed you my marriage certificate? And he said, well, anybody can make one of those up these days, good laser printer. I say, all right, well, how about if I take you to my house and I'll introduce you to my wife? And he was, it's like, well, that doesn't mean anything. You could just have a friend stand in to advance the deception. And so finally I say, well, how about if I had 50 people that were at our wedding 47 years ago and saw us take our vows, saw the pastor pronounce us husband and wife, would that do it for you? He said, that, that would do it. And if you uh, were here for our sermon back in January as part of our apologetic series, Within Reason, uh, you may remember the Sunday that we talked about, can we trust the testimony of this book? Can we trust the testimony of the New Testament? And specifically, we were talking about, can we trust the testimony of the Gospels? Because after all, we're 2,000 years after they were written. Can we really be sure that what we have was what was written back then? Has it been corrupted? And can we even be sure that what was written back then, if it is accurate, was reflective of what took, actually took place? And I think at that time, it introduced you to a world-renowned scholar by the name of Dr. Bart Ehrman. And uh, he is uh, kind of one of the who's who scholars when it comes to the New Testament. He is a professor of religious studies at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Uh, made a profession of faith in Christ when he was in high school, went to Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton College, kind of um, Grand Poobah of one of the evangelical schools, and then went to um, Princeton for his master's in and doctoral work. And it was while he was at Princeton, he began to uh, question some of the things that he had formerly believed regarding the scriptures. And his area of expertise was textual criticism. 
So he began to tear the scriptures apart and became more and more of a skeptic. Uh, eventually said he doesn't believe that these are reliable and uh, has written at 30 or edited or written 30 plus books, including six New York Times bestsellers. And most of those are critical about who Jesus was today considers himself an atheist. And the reason I'm bringing him up is because today we're going to talk about the question, Jesus, are you God? Would you say that you were God? If we had Jesus in the room, would he make that claim? Ehrman, when he was interviewed by National Public Radio one time, said these things. That during his lifetime, Jesus didn't call himself God, and he didn't consider himself God. And none of his disciples had any inkling at all that he was God. You do find Jesus calling himself God in the Gospel of John or the last Gospel. When Jesus says things like, before Abraham was, I am. Or, I and the Father are one. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. These are all statements, Bartman said, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Ehrman says, these are all statements that you find only in the Gospel of John. And that's striking because we have earlier Gospels and we have the writings of Paul, and in none of them is there any indication that Jesus said such things. Dr. Ehrman continued later in that interview saying, I think it's completely implausible that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three Gospel writers, would not mention that Jesus called himself God if that's what he was declaring about himself. That would be a rather important point to make. This is not an unusual view among scholars. It's simply the view that the Gospel of John is providing a theological understanding of Jesus that is not what was historically accurate. And as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, Dr. Ehrman, you would just save a lot of verbiage if you would simply say, John lied. John didn't tell the truth about what Jesus said about himself. And one of the frustrations I have sometimes is that scholars simply rule out the authenticity of statements or books because they don't like what's in them. They just don't believe what's in them. And so he has ruled out the Gospel of John. So we're going to look at the trial, one of the trials that Jesus had right after he was arrested. And you can find Luke 22 in your Bibles a while. Luke 22, we'll start reading at verse 66 today. And uh, I'd like to pray for us and ask for God's help before we uh, do that. Father, what we're talking about this morning is not some theological nitpicking. A little like the scholastics used to debate how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. Fun to talk about, nobody really knows, doesn't really make any difference. This does. In fact, it makes huge difference. It's, it's monumental. In fact, our faith cannot survive if Jesus was simply a very powerful man, but not God. Help us to discern, help us to be wise, fill us with the Spirit that we might know truth, and that it might indeed, as Jesus said, set us free. And we pray against the enemy of our souls who loves to see these kinds of things nullified, uh, rejected, ignored. We pray against his, him and his influence 
for all of us who hear. We pray that we might not be naive and simply say, oh, I believe something because somebody said so, but that we would be discerning and wise and we would be guided and shaped and led by your Holy Spirit. Pray that you would speak through me when you can and in spite of me when you must and that Jesus might be lifted up this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning of verse 66, um, just an FYI, there were a number of encounters or trials that Jesus had, examinations that he had after he was arrested. Uh, one at Annas' house, one at his son-in-law Caiaphas' house, and then Pilate, and then Herod, and then back to Pilate. And it looks like this is the one that would have been the second examination by the council, the one at Caiaphas' house. At daybreak, all the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. Jesus was led before this high council, the Sanhedrin, and they said, tell us, are you the Messiah? But he replied, well, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. And they all shouted, so, are you claiming to be the Son of God? And he replied, you say that I am. Why do we need other witnesses, they said. We ourselves heard him say it. Now this council examination and the other one was a farce. It was a pretense. So much of what took place in the run-up to Jesus' execution was illegal or broke all kinds of procedures. Just a couple of them. To have a trial in a private home, which they did twice now, Annas' home, Caiaphas' home, was illegal. According to rabbinic law, you could not have a trial in a private home. To have a trial at night was illegal, and night would be any time before the morning sacrifice, which would have been 9 a.m. They've had two of these now, again at night. They, had no, they allowed no witnesses uh, for the defense, uh, for the accused. They had plenty of witnesses they had brought uh, to bear against Jesus, but they couldn't agree, and they couldn't agree on charges, and the charges, most cases were false. They said that Jesus said he was going to tear down the temple. He never said that. He said, tear down this temple, talking about his body, and I will build it back up in three days. It was a farce. But the worst part was, they had already decided the verdict before they had a trial. Earlier in this chapter, verse 2, the leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus. They had already decided he was guilty. All they had to do was figure out how to make it publicly acceptable that he was guilty. Everything about this was wrong. And they concluded eventually that Jesus was blaspheming, and, and, and it doesn't use that word in this text, but it does in some of the other accounts, Mark 14, 64. Blasphemy means that he has, uh, Jesus has somehow um, defied God, he has misrepresented God, in this case, he has claimed to be God. In some sense, he's claimed to be God. And blasphemy, that's enough for that. He deserves to die for that. But they're going to have to come up with something else when they go to Rome. 
because they're not going to care about any kind of rules regarding their religion or regarding their God, and so they would eventually come up with sedition once they stand before Pilate. Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews, and so that's a competing king to Caesar. You have to do away with him because of that. I want to ask two questions this morning. I want to stand in the place of the Sanhedrin and ask Jesus the question, tell us who you are, Jesus. And then when we've talked about that for a while, let's turn the tables and have Jesus ask a question of us. Who are you? Who are you, Jesus? And there are three labels that are applied to Jesus in this text. I want to look at each of them. We'll try to sort out whether or not these labels mean anything. Uh, did they reveal anything about who Jesus actually was? Of course, the first one was, Sanhedrin asked Jesus, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Now, the Messiah was simply a Hebrew word that meant the anointed one. This was a special person. It wasn't a group of people. This was a special person that had been spoken about for 1,500 years that the Jews had been waiting on and waiting on. By the way, just as a footnote, when we use the uh, term Jesus Christ or the label Jesus Christ, that's not Jesus' first and last name. It means Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Christos is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. Are you the Messiah? And all Israel was waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah. Moses had talked about this one who would come in the future sometime in Deuteronomy 18, 15. He said, God's going to raise up uh, from among you, uh, from among the Jewish tribes, another prophet like me. And you must listen to what he says and you must do what he says. And so that went back uh, many, many centuries, and the Jewish people have been waiting on this kind of vision for the future, this person who's going to appear on the scene of history someday. And what he's going to do when he comes, this is the, these are the kinds of things that they expected of him. That he's going to um, rule over Israel, that he's going to regather the exiles, the Jewish exiles from all of the nations uh, to which they had been scattered over the years. He's going to rebuild the temple, he's going to set up uh, the religious uh, courts again, and, and he's going to reestablish the sacrifices at the temple, and um, uh, uh, he's going to rule over a newly prosperous nation. This is what they dreamed of. This is what they hoped for. And of course, every time there was uh, a period of enslavement or oppression, like in Jesus' day, where they're under the thumb of, the Rome, of Rome, they think this would be a great time for the Messiah to appear on the scene. And there were people in Jesus' day, who thought that Jesus was the Messiah, and he had given hints that he was the Messiah. So, are you the Messiah? Now, the religious leaders could not accept that he was this person. The kinds of things that they were anticipating, he wasn't doing. He was doing some impressive things, but not what they had in their minds the Messiah would do. And it's it's interesting, um, today, Jewish people, by and large, have given up on the idea of the Messiah. Unless, they're, uh, unless they are uh, Orthodox Jews or ultra-Orthodox Jews, most Jews have given up looking for a Messiah. Despite the fact that every Passover celebration, they go through the motions of looking uh, out the door to see if Elijah's coming, because the Bible said that Elijah 
would be the forerunner of the Messiah. He would be the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. But most of them have given up. After 3,500 years, he's not coming. He probably never will come. And, and they have instead turned their efforts to improving the world in which they live in. And so uh, there's a, a lot of modern Jews are very invested in um, uh, cleaning up the environment and promoting a, a, an atmosphere of inclusiveness in their world. Uh, they're interested in, in social works and hoping... Uh, that things like this and eliminating poverty might trigger a future messianic era. In other words, if we can't have somebody like this come to deliver us, maybe we can deliver ourselves. And isn't that more and more what we have concluded we need to do? We need to deliver ourselves. If we can just get the right political party in here, or if we can just clean up our streets, or if we can just eliminate hunger and poverty, we can bring a bright new future for us, apart from any investment of any outside forces. Jesus, are you the Messiah? Interesting, isn't it? He didn't answer them directly. In fact, he said, even if I tell you, you wouldn't believe me. Now, if you read between the lines there, he's essentially said yes. Because what would they believe if I said, I am the Messiah? So he has answered them in a roundabout way. Even if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I asked you, you wouldn't give me an answer. This was often true of the religious leaders. Jesus would ask them a question and they would dodge the answer, not say anything at all because they were afraid of the people that were loyal to Jesus, that admired Jesus, that looked up to him and thought that he was the greatest thing they had seen in their lifetimes. And so he says, you'd be too obstinate to answer my question. And then he shifts the attention away from the Messiah label to another one, verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. Now, if you just read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, four Gospels, you'll find the, the most often, uh, most used term that Jesus used for himself was the Son of Man. In fact, if he wasn't referring to himself with a pronoun, it was usually he was talking about himself as the Son of Man. And some of that's important because he was born of a woman, and there was a much bigger picture there, but he wanted to remind them again and again about the importance that he was born of a woman. In fact, John says in his first epistle that if someone rejects that Jesus was born in the flesh, they have rejected the gospel. So Jesus says this amazing thing. I'm the son of man. He, he makes it he seems to be saying, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man, and I will be seated in this place of power at God's right hand. This is what is right around the corner. And they got livid. They're shouting at him. So you're claiming to be the Son of God. Why were they so upset? Why were they so in, indignant about what he said? Let me take you back to the reason for that. The Old Testament prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, let's 
a little book of 12 chapters, and if you've never read the book of Daniel, you should. It's a fascinating book. Daniel was one of the uh, longest-running prophets in Israel's history, and he did it in a hostile environment. He was a captive in Babylon, and the stories in Daniel are absolutely riveting. I mean, they're the stuff of Hollywood movies. Uh, lion's Den, cast into the fiery furnace, um, threatened by all kinds of people, amazing visions that we, he was given, and, and amazing favor that he had with pagan kings, uh, first the Babylonians and then the Persians. And this chapter is one of Daniel's visions. Chapter 7, beginning verse 13. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Someone like a son of man. He, Daniel is reaching for words to explain what he saw. It's, it's like a son of man, but not exactly. And he's coming with the clouds of heaven. That suggests that it's more than just someone who is human. He approached the ancient one, or your text might say the ancient of days. This is God the Father. And was led into his presence. And there he was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. Given by whom? God the Father. So that the people of every race and every nation and every language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. In other words, he's not going to live 20 years, 30 years, and then die. Somebody takes his place. This kingdom never ends. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Now you look at some of, the, some of the writings in there. This can't be just a human being. Just a person. He's coming in the clouds. He's brought into the presence of God Almighty. By God Almighty, he's given this amazing authority so that everybody, all 7.8 billion people, or however many are alive on earth when this happens, everybody is, uh, pays homage to him, there to obey him, and he rules over them, and this kingdom that he rules will never end, never be destroyed. Now the Israelites knew this was speaking about somebody who is more than. They thought, yes, it is the Messiah, but this text was a particularly intriguing text to the Jews, and especially the Jewish leaders. Something special about him. And when Jesus identified himself obliquely, kind of around, in a roundabout way, identified himself as the Son of Man, and he is positioning himself to receive all of this authority. He's positioning himself to come in the clouds and be anointed by God in this way. His questioners knew who he meant. And so they respond. So you're saying that you are the son of God. He's identified himself as the son of man. Now they go on to this third label. You, are, you, you say that you're the son of God? And Jesus says, well, you say that I am. And let me maybe just read this passage in Mark chapter 14. At the same time, Mark includes something else that Jesus said. Verse 62. And you will see the Son of Man coming in the place of power at God's right hand. In other words, he's positioned himself now. He's not just in the presence of God, but he's at the place of power at God's right hand and coming in the clouds of heaven. So, 
There's nothing left to be concluded for his examiners. He's, he has implied that he is the Messiah. He has declared that he's the Son of Man, and now he has all but said that he is the Son of God. All but said. Why in the world was Jesus being so coy? And he is the same way when he's before Pilate. Why didn't he just say it? Why didn't he just go there? Why didn't he just get everything out on the table? There was an incident early in Jesus' ministry that I think hints at that. And then we'll look at a verse in John that I think, think spells it out explicitly. Jesus was preaching at the, the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he was reading from the book of Isaiah, and he was reading about the coming kingdom of God. When he finished reading, closed the scroll, and he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the people were indignant. Who do you think you are? It's blasphemous. And they drag him out to the edge of the cliff outside of town, and they're going to throw him over and kill him. And the Bible says that he simply walked back through them and walked away, and nobody could harm him. In other words, there was a plan, and there was a chronology. There was a, 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 a uh, do this, and do this, and do this, and do this, and then this that God had in mind. And Jesus didn't want to open the door to that kind of reaction too soon. He had teaching to do, he had preaching to do, he had discipling to do with these 12 men, uh, he had healings to do and other miracles to demonstrate that the kingdom of God was breaking in through him and his time had not yet come, but it would. John chapter 8, verse 28. John chapter 8, <clears throat> 28, Jesus says this. When you have lifted up, and, and this is in a chapter where people were, man, they were really having a tough time accepting all that Jesus was said about, saying about himself, uh, and as well as the previous two chapters. When you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, in other words, when you crucify me, then you will understand that I am And the couple of occasions that Jesus said, I am, the Jews knew who, what he was talking about and who he was identifying himself with. When Moses stood around the burning bush in the desert, if you remember that story, Moses is out with sheep. And he sees a bush that's burning, and it's not burning up, it's just burning. And he goes over to it, he's, cu he's curious about what it is, and God speaks to him out of the bush. Just take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And he has this conversation with Moses. He wants to send him to be the liberator for his people. Take them out of Egypt. I'll be with you, I'll carry you, uh, but you'll be my leader for that. Moses says, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. I can't speak. And God has all these obstacles that Moses keeps throwing out. And one of them was, if I go to the people, they won't listen to me. Who, who, who shall I say sent me? And, Mo, and God answers Moses this way. Tell them, I am sent you. I am. Not I was, not I will, but I am. 
I was way back there, I am now, and I always will be. I'm eternal, I had no beginning, I had no end. I am, Jesus says, I am. When the people hear that, they go, uh-oh. He's claiming to be, he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be God Almighty. He's identified himself with the Father. That's the reason I think that Jesus is so coy. He's going to let what's about to happen in the next couple of days speak for itself. When Jesus goes to the cross and Jesus comes back from the dead on the third day and he begins to interact with people and he goes back to heaven and he, uh, he dispatches his apostles to the ends of the globe to share the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son as a sacrifice for them. They will know when he has been offered up then they will understand that I am he. Do these labels, Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, reveal anything about Jesus? I would say they hint. But if you don't, if you are not open to hearing God speak truth to you, hints don't do anything for you. And so the Sanhedrin went about their business of murdering Jesus. Now, before we leave this text and go to Jesus answering, asking us the question, let me, let me point out two things about Jesus that I think are the slam dunks of self-identification. You might think that they're miracles. Jesus did some incredible things, including raising the dead, healed a lot of people, cast out a lot of demons, he took a small lunch and turned it into a banquet for thousands twice. He did some remarkable things, but so did his disciples. He sent them out on a missionary trip and they healed people and demons submitted to them. And after Jesus went back to heaven, they did this on their missionary tours as well. You didn't have to be God to do miracles. But what about if you created everything that existed? John 1.3 says Jesus created everything. Colossians 1.16 says Jesus created. Hebrews 1.2, Jesus created. When his Father created everything that existed, Jesus was there creating right along with it. Human beings don't do that. Mark chapter 2. Turn to Mark chapter 2. <clears throat> To me, this is the most significant declaration that Jesus made while he was here on earth, that he is God. Verse 1, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, this is the very beginning of his ministry. He returned to Capernaum several days later. The news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, and so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Wouldn't you have loved to have been the homeowner that day? Then they lowered the man on the, his mat right down in front of Jesus. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My son or my child, your sins are forgiven. Just let that sink in. The first thing he says to a man who can't walk, who can't get around on his own, my child, your sins are forgiven. Do you think that could 
reveal that Jesus thinks that the man's greatest problem is not that he can't walk from point A to point B. Some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, and so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? And so I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and he walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have never seen anything like this before. Now, to me, Dr. Ehrman can rule out the Gospel of John, but if he is willing to rule in the Gospel of Mark, this says that Jesus said, I am God. He can forgive sins. Could the Apostle Paul forgive sins? Could the Apostle Peter forgive sins? Can your priest forgive sins? Can your pastor forgive sins? The Bible says there is one, not many, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And make no mistake about it, and there are people who say there are Christians who don't think that Jesus is God, and they don't think it matters. After all, they do the Christian kinds of things that New Testament urges them to do. It doesn't really matter if I believe Jesus is God. Does it? Well, here's the thing. If Jesus is not God, because the scribes were right that day, only God can forgive sins. And if we ask Jesus to forgive our sins, and he's not God, he can't forgive us. And we're not forgiven. And we are still in our sins. And conversely, if he is God, then his blood could pay for the sins of the world, and he can forgive us. Now let's turn the tables a bit, and instead of Jesus being questioned, let's have Jesus question us for a few minutes. Let him question us for a few minutes. So he would say to us, friend, tell me who you are. And there might be three possible, might be more, but broad categories, three possible responses that we would have, could have. One, that I'm a person who lives for me. I live for me. That doesn't mean I don't care about anybody else, but I, I, I answer to me. Um, my, money, mon, my money and my minutes are spent on me or those that I care about in my circle. My achievements, my successes, I take the credit for. I solve my problems myself. I lean on me. And 
I either don't believe that there's a problem between God and me, or I don't care. Just let me insert a footnote here for the person who might not care. Jesus said, when he came, he said, I've not come to call people who think they are righteous or who think they are okay with God or a God. I've come to call people who realize that there's a problem that exists between them and God. So this is a person who's kind of self-preoccupied. They're attentive to what they need and what they want and their world. That's kind of the extent of it. There's a second category of people who might respond, and, and they wouldn't say it this way, I, I'm, I'm imposing this on them. But they, uh, they live for a false God. They live for a false God. They would say, I answer to one of a thousand false gods or false philosophies. And they might be religious, and they might follow... Um, Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, or they might uh, follow the teachings of the Buddha, or they might be Jewish and follow the law of Moses, or they might not be religious at all, but they're philosophical, and so they have a, a, a way of living that they have uh, decided this is the best way to live. And so they answer to this philosophy in their life. So it's not like they say it's just about me, but they have a, they have a way of looking at life and, and they adopt their lifestyle to that philosophy or that religion. And they would say, my minutes and my money are also spent in doing good works. They're not just for me, but for other people. They might be very interested in, and uh, energized by social action. One of the exciting things that I see today in the and the millennial generation is very highly invested in, in social action, uh, caring about neighbors, helping neighbors, putting their money and their energy into alleviating needs that are around them. But this group of people might take all the credit for their own achievements and successes. Even though they follow a particular philosophy, um, or a particular religion, they might see themselves as, as really, um, uh, they're the one who gains credit for the good things that they do and the advances that they make and the achievements that they've accomplished. I, I can take the credit for that. And you would see that in really many religions around the world. It's a pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's a, it's a performance kind of thing. I do this, that, and the other thing. God calls me to do this, or my philosophy calls me to do this, but I'm the one that actually does, does it, and I get the credit for it. Let me just insert here that this would be true of what I'll call false Christianity as well. Luke, uh, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 6, beginning of verse 46. So why, he's talking to people in front of him, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, a, a term that speaks about a, an authority and about a mastery over you, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I'll show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then does follow it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep down and lays the foundation for that house on solid rock, 
when the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. He's talking about things like troubles in life, persecution. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house without a foundation. And when the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. Jesus gets even more pointed in Matthew chapter 7, beginning verse 21. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will, actually, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what I mean by fraudulent Christianity, fake Christians. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, we prophesied in your name, and we cast out demons in your name, and we perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, sorry, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. False Christians living for a false God. They, they say the right things with their mouths, but their lives deny their claim. In each of these cases, again, we're under this label of I live for a false God or a false philosophy. In each of these cases, people think uh, that they do have some kind of a problem if they didn't think that, they wouldn't follow a philosophy, they wouldn't follow a religion. They may not call this problem sin, like the Bible does, but whatever it is that they think is the problem, they're going to reach for some kind of inadequate fix, a, a, a religious duty, uh, good works that others will be impressed with or uh, see them as uh, ad admirable for, or fruitless faith. They have a problem they reach for an inadequate fix. The third possible response to Jesus' question, tell me who you are, is that I live for God through faith in Jesus Christ. I live for God through faith in Christ. The Bible tells us that one day all of us are going to stand before God to give an account to him. Hebrews 4.13 That means me. That means your best friend, means your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your boss, your president, your priest, your neighbor. From the best of us to the worst of us, we're all going to stand before God one day and give an account. And what will that account look like? Let me you turn again to John, this time chapter 8. Well, I guess that's where we were. John chapter 8, verse 19. And Jesus said, since you don't know who I am, again, this is the identity issue, who is Jesus? Since you don't know who I am, that means that you don't know who my Father is. In other words, you cannot do a, an end-around play and get to my Father Without me, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. You want to get to God's throne room? You, you, gotta, you have to go through me. Since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my Father is. If you knew me, in other words, Jesus is the key, if you knew me, then you would know also know my Father. And later in verse 24, Jesus says, That's why I said that you will die in your sins. For unless 
You believe that I am, and most Bible translations put the I and the A-M in capital letters to hark back to that conversation that Moses had with God in Exodus. Unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. You're not going to die in your sins because you're a bad person. You're not going to die in your sins because you did something really, really criminal that people would look down on you for. You're going to die in your sins because you refuse to accept the sin taker that God has offered in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that the way to be made right with God is we are estranged from God, every last one of us, because of our sins. Not because of the number of our sins, not because of the grievous nature of some of our sins, but simply because they exist, because we have any at all. One would have been enough to make the account before God one of judgment. But if we repent of our sins, the Bible talks about changing our mind about sin, that we no longer make peace with it. We now repent of it. I'm going to live on a war footing with sin the rest of my life. Repent of sin and put faith in the only one who can forgive our sins, the God-man. Died to pay for our sins. That's the ticket. That's the solution. And so I wonder, what do you say? Jesus, well, I can say I'm pretty much a person that lives for me. I'm all about my life. Live for today. Tomorrow might not be here. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. You may die. Or I might say, Jesus, I live for a different God, or I live for a different philosophy than one that says I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to reconcile me to God. And I just want to encourage you to ask yourself this question in this coming week. Can I look at my life and find in it enough intrinsic goodness that I can one day stand before God and in the account that I give him say, you have to pass me on. The fact of the matter is, if Jesus is not what you stay, stand and give an account uh, to God about, you're simply going to face judgment. doesn't matter whether you live for self or a false philosophy. And let me just remind you of what we talked about back in January, I believe, in our apologetic series. That either Jesus is false and other philosophies or faiths are true. Or Jesus is true and the rest are false. There's really no middle ground. It's nice to think that all faiths lead the same place. It's the spirit of the day. We love being able to say everything's true instead of some things are true and some are false. It's just not the way it's going to work on the day when we give an account. And I'd really encourage you to wrestle with this question Hear this ringing in your head this week. Friend, who are you? Tell me who you are. Tell me who you are. Tell me who you are. Because Jesus wants you to know him. He came so that you might know his Father through him. And let me close with this verse. John chapter 18. Uh, John chapter 1, sorry, verse 18. John chapter 1. 
No one has ever seen God. But the unique one, and this is a reference to Jesus, whom they've been talking about through the entire chapter, but the unique one, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. He's revealed God's mercy to us. He's revealed God's grace to us, his, his willingness to pardon us. He's, he's revealed God's love for us. God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, God, Christ died for us. He has revealed the Father's heart to us. He has revealed God to us because he is God. Father, thank you for sending not just a, a very prominent, powerful, smart person to us. Thank you for sending to us the one and only Son, the eternal Son, who was without beginning like you, who created with you, and then who brought you to us and on our behalf died for you to present us with the most amazing gift ever, the ability to be forgiven of our sins and made right with you, have eternal life with you, um, be, become a child of yours, be forgiven, have this eternal inheritance to enable us to lay down our um, combat with other people and to love them for your name's sake and to serve them for your name's sake and even to be willing to lay down our lives for them for your name's sake. We're so grateful for Jesus and we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. There are four different ways that you can continue to interact with us this morning. And the first would be if you would love to have someone pray for you about anything, click on that little button that says live prayer and someone from our prayer team will uh, reach out to you in a private text message uh, to be able to pray for you about anything. Second, if you call Keystone home or believe and want to support the mission of Keystone Church, uh, you can give um, to Keystone by clicking on the tab at the top of the screen or going to keystonechurch.org give where you're able to give a one-time gift uh, or set up a reoccurring gift. Number three, if you are looking for ways uh, for Keystone to help you or for you to help Keystone, you can go to keystonechurch.org compassion. And on that page, there is a form for you to fill out uh, for you to be able to receive help or uh, find out ways to help. And the last one, number four, uh, one of the things that we've seen people love about this time of worshiping together is the fact that they've been able to dialogue and process and reflect on the message. And so there are a handful of questions that are in the sermon notes uh, for you to be able to reflect on or discuss with um, people who would be able to figure out how is God continuing to speak uh, to you through his word. Uh, the pastors will end up posting a video later on this week on Facebook and our YouTube page uh, for you to see how is God still speaking to us um, because of the message. I'll see you next time.